We're uh, going through a summer series in <clears throat> Paul's two letters to the Thessalonians. And uh, last week we completed his first letter, and this week we begin the second letter. <clears throat> so let me just take a minute to uh, review the background. We're not going to spend very much time on this because we've already done it a few weeks ago. But just a reminder that uh, First Thessalonians and Second Thessalonians were written close in time during Paul's second missionary journey when he had first gone to Greece. And uh, he had desired to do that for a long time, and the Lord finally permitted him, and he, he visited uh, Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. And uh, he only spent a, a couple of weeks in Thessalonica. He had to leave there, and he worked his way down uh, Greece. He went to Athens, and uh, he was really concerned about what was happening in Thessalonica since he'd only been there a short time. You can read about all of this in Acts chapter 16. And so he sent, uh, <clears throat> he sent Timothy back, uh, who was traveling with him, sent him back to Thessalonica as he himself went on to Corinth. And he spent about a year and a half in Corinth, and while he was there, he uh, heard from Timothy. Timothy came back and gave a report. Uh, Paul was greatly encouraged, and he actually wrote a letter to the Thessalonians. And then shortly thereafter, maybe as little as a couple of months later, he wrote another letter to them. And this is the second, the second of the two letters. Um, it's interesting to think that um, I was just trying to do a little math on the, the timing of this. It was around um, AD 50, uh, and that wasn't too long after the Lord had died and rose again. Um, if Paul was writing uh, today, these letters, then that would have been uh, about as much time as if the Lord had um, uh, died and rose again in the year 2000. Isn't that interesting? Not, not very long after. All of this activity of Paul, um, the spread of the gospel happened very quickly, and it was only about 20 years later that, um, that he was now in uh, Corinth and... Um, and writing these letters to the Thessalonians. <coughs> Probably some of his earliest letters. Some people think that maybe Galatians was a little bit earlier. There's a theory that puts it a little bit earlier, but certainly some of his earliest letters. Now, if you've got a Bible, you could uh, open it up to 2 Thessalonians. I'm going to read chapter 1, the whole chapter, and uh, I'll read it from the English Standard Version. If that's not the version that you've got in front of you, um, you can uh, note the differences, or you can just uh, close your eyes and listen. Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you and the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. 
This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, as we open your word this morning, we uh, pray that you would speak to us. We thank you that these words that were penned by Paul on a parchment with just an ordinary pen have been preserved for all these years. We thank you that your Holy Spirit inspired him as he wrote them. We thank you that they are for us today as much as they were for the Thessalonians back then. We pray that you would encourage and challenge us with them. We pray in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So the uh, Thessalonian church seems to be uh, growing properly. Uh, Paul uh, can say in verse 4 that he's boasting of them. He says, therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God. And uh, this growth that they see is something that we can see all the way through both First and Second Thessalonians. And that's what I'd like to focus on today. The whole idea of church growth, um, we learn uh, a fair bit about it here. It's one of Paul's, or Paul's main themes in 2 Thessalonians. He also has a, um, a theme of to do with future events, just as he does in 1 Thessalonians. And uh, a third theme in this book only comes out in chapter 3, which is quite interesting, and that's the theme of slothfulness. So that will be fun in a couple of weeks to deal with slothfulness. But uh, so these are three of the themes that are there, church growth, uh, future times, and slothfulness. And we're going to pick up the theme of church growth. Paul boasts about this, and I want to focus on two questions, very simple to state. One is how, and the other is why. One word questions. To expand that a little bit, let's talk about how a church grows. Maybe we'll have some surprises here. Do we get any clues that characterize 
what a growing church is from this letter to the Thessalonians. Are there any tests that we can apply to ourselves? If we apply those tests, are we growing at Terror Road Bible Chapel? Uh, is one of the tests, for example, growth in numbers? And then we'll talk about why. Why should we bother to grow? Why is growth important? I did them in that order because once we see what growth is, it makes more sense to ask, well, why should we grow? So as for the, the how, I'm going to suggest uh, five ways a church grows. None of them is growing in size. Now that's not to say that growth in size is not an important thing, but if we read about church growth in the New Testament, in particular Paul's letters, we see next to nothing about growing in size, but we see many other characteristics of growth uh, that Paul talks about. We're going to talk about five for just a few minutes, um, and these aren't the only five things but there are five things that we can pick up from uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. So just to uh, frame our discussion, the five are faith. How do we grow? We grow in faith. We grow in love. We grow in steadfastness. We grow in obedience. And we grow in completion. That last one's kind of interesting, isn't it? How do we grow in completion? Well, we'll deal with each of those in order. I'll go through these fairly quickly. First of all, Paul says in verse 3, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. And actually, this was an answer to a prayer that he expressed in his previous letter to them. In chapter 3 and verse 10, he said, as we pray most earnestly, night and day, that we may, be, uh, we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. So he saw that. He saw that their faith was lacking somehow, perhaps just because they were young Christians. And he was praying that their faith might increase. And now, just a couple of months later, when he's writing his second letter, he's able to say he's <coughs> giving thanks for their faith, which is a growing abundantly. So, how does faith grow? Well, your uh, first reaction might be, well, let's see, my faith is growing Therefore, um, I'm more sure. I'm uh, more stubbornly sure. I've got the, uh, the propositions of faith in my mind, uh, the propositions about God and sin and the Lord Jesus, and I've got them in my mind, and I believe them more strongly. And I'm gritting my teeth, and my faith is growing, and I'm being more stubborn. And if anybody talks to me, I'll just tell them, you're wrong because I'm right, so therefore my faith is stronger. I don't think that's what Paul means. I think that we do have greater confidence in what we believe as our faith increases, 
But that's not the mechanism of increasing faith. I thought maybe it was uh, analogous to um, tools. If you, if you think, uh, guys, if you think of going out and buying yourself a, a new tool, let's say a power tool, because guys love power tools, or girls, if you're in the kitchen and you get a new tool in the kitchen, or girls, if you go out and buy yourself a new power tool, or guys, if you're in the kitchen and you buy yourself a new kitchen tool, just to be completely uh, gender neutral here. Um, just imagine what it's like when you first get that tool, and it's complicated, and you're trying to figure out how it works, and you don't have much faith in it. Um, it's got a 75-page instruction book. It's just a saw, and it's got a 75-page instruction book, and you're just trying to figure out, like, how does this work, and is it really going to work, and I'm not very confident. But as you start to use it, you, you read the manual, maybe, most people don't read manuals. Uh, you read the manual and you start using your saw or your new blender, whatever it is, and it works. And you do simple things. And then you're, uh, maybe, maybe my daughter's using her Instant Pot. And uh, at first, it's, you know, she's unsure, like this is something she hasn't done before. And gradually, she gets familiar with it. And she gains faith in it. She's even able to invent new things that aren't even menus for it. And she just knows how to use it. Well, I think faith is like that. As we work it out in our lives, as we experience the outputs of faith, then the actual belief in the propositions increases because we realize that what we believed in was not just... Uh, uh, sentences on a page, but it was the actual truth. It actually has to do with the way the way the world works. And we've got it now. We're more confident and our faith is increasing. And so I think this is what happens. We, we see in uh, Hebrews chapter 5, there's um, some good verses there about uh, feeding with um, milk and or solid food. And, and uh, there's... Um, <laughs> an expression there in verse 14 that says solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment uh, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So here's one way when we work on the, the, the distinguishing between good and evil in our lives. That's wisdom. Then that increases our faith. As we realize, as we do that through time, as we distinguish between good and evil and have keen discernment, our faith increases because we realize that what we believed in was true and it works and it models the world correctly and our faith is increasing. And associated with that is the idea of obedience. As we obey through time, our faith increases. Uh, in Romans chapter 1, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. Isn't that an interesting expression there? The obedience of faith. So our faith leads to obedience, and our obedience increases our faith as we are obedient. It's associated with worship in Romans chapter 4 and verse 20. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith, as he gave glory to God. So as we come together 
and worship together, or as we worship the Lord in our individual lives, as we present our bodies as a living sacrifice, Romans 12, 1 and 2, this is our spiritual worship. As we worship God, then our faith increases. Of course, when our faith increases, we worship him more too. It's a positive feedback loop. So the point here is that part of church growth is that all of us together should be experiencing in our lives an increased faith. That's what growth is. And we can measure it in these various ways. Are we being more wise? Are we being more obedient? Uh, We can measure it in these ways. But the question is, is our faith increasing? Because if it isn't, if our faith isn't increasing, then in some sense we're not growing here at Terrell Road. So church growth involves faith growth. The second one is love. We ought always to give thanks for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. And again, Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. He's praying that that would happen. Now in his second letter, he's able to praise them because their love is increasing. Love for one another. How can we measure that? Are we praying for each other? Are we encouraging each other? Are we challenging each other? Or do we just sort of drift in here on a Sunday and drift out again, none of these things happening? Are we consoling each other? We all have difficulties and afflictions. Are we consoling each other? Are we helping each other? Are we having each other in our homes? These are the ways that we can internally measure whether our church is growing, whether TRBC is growing, if our love is increasing. If it's not, if it's just static, if all of these things just sort of remaining flat and not growing, then even if we have more numbers, we're not growing. This is also an external test. We can ask ourselves, are we, uh, are we growing with respect to people outside? What about when outsiders see us? Maybe they come to visit us. Maybe they see us at some event that we're having. Uh, what do they see? And what do they see next year? And then the year after that, maybe these are um, VBS events. Do they see increased love? <coughs> do they see love for them? If not, then we're not growing. <coughs> Excuse me. Steadfastness, Paul says in verse 4, Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith again in all your persecutions and the afflictions that you are enduring. Steadfastness, of course, goes along with faith, just like it 
was in this verse here, steadfastness and faith. It's our faith that allows us to be steadfast. Um, and so we can look at ourselves and stay, say, are we steadfast? Are we constant? This is more, this is an interesting aspect to growing because steadfastness itself is something that doesn't grow. It's just, it's sort of constant. And the lack of growth in steadfastness, if there is such a thing, is because people drift off. So we can ask ourselves about our church here. Are people drifting off? Are they leaving because they don't like one little thing or another? Uh, are they um, wavering in, the, in, in their faith? Am I wavering in my faith? This is a very sad thing when it happens, when people drift away. And uh, a certain amount of it, you might expect, Jesus himself in the parable of the sower said that uh, some seed falls on uh, the, um, the stony ground. And, uh, and springs up and then just uh, the heat comes along, which is like persecution, and uh, they drift off. So we're told that a certain amount of this uh, might happen, but uh, if it characterizes us, if we're just sort of drifting in and out, we're not steadfast in what our purpose is here, and we've discussed that before, then uh, perhaps we're not growing. And then uh, a fourth one is uh, obedience. It says in verse 8, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says in verse 11, to this end we also pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. And so we can ask ourselves, is our obedience increasing? This is a measure of growth if our obedience is increasing. This is not to say that we're becoming more worthy of our salvation because our salvation has already happened. It's already completed. But as part of our salvation, it's a natural response that we're more and more obedient over time. God makes us worthy by making us obedient able to obey and so we're able to obey him over time and increasingly if we don't then it's our choice that we've not done that so we're increasing we're growing if we're increasingly obedient and then in verse uh, 11 again he says uh, we pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power and the idea of fulfilling there is completing. And so we can imagine uh, that we uh, as people here at Terrell Road have certain things that we have in mind that we want to do, personal goals in our lives, um, projects that we're involved with, with other people here, um, uh, things that involve the whole assembly, goals and purposes and, and activities and so on. And these things... God, it says, Paul prays that God will help us to bring those to completion, to finish them, to do them, to be resolved to finish them. 
And if we're not doing that, if we're just having ideas and sort of doing a little bit and then, well, it's, I'm too busy to do that, oh, I'm, too busy. I'm too busy to go to church, I'm too busy to uh, finish a particular thing that I started, well, that's an indication that we're not growing. The extent to which we're able to bring to completion the works that God is putting in our hearts is the extent to which uh, there's an indication uh, that we're growing. Um, Ephesians, in Ephesians 4, a uh, tremendous passage there about um, what God is doing in the church. And uh, he says, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. There's a job to be done, building up the body of Christ. All of these things we've been talking about are the way that the building up happens. Even evangelists are given as a gift for building up the body of Christ. So this is a this is a a very important sort of self-evaluation thing that we should, as as a body of believers, as a a flock of sheep, we should all be thinking about this. Are we growing? And if we're not growing, what can I do to help us grow? I would suggest that very often, when people choose to go to a particular church, they're not choosing on the basis of um, what can I do to help this body of believers grow? It's more, what can they give me? Do they have uh, a good preacher? Do they have uh, a good Sunday school? There's nothing wrong with these things. They're all good criteria. But this would suggest that the growth is something that depends on the th- characteristics that we as a people display towards each other, loving each other, having faith and obedience and completion of our, uh, our goals and projects and tasks. <coughs> and so we should all be doing that. This is part of the whole aspect of church growth. So now let's just briefly consider why church growth is uh, important. I'm going to suggest three reasons that are given here. One is that it's evidence of God's righteous judgment. Uh, Two, that Christ may be glorified in us. And three, that we may be glorified in Christ. All three of those are directly from this passage. It's evidence of God's righteous judgment. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, he says in verse 5 that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, since indeed God considers it just to to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And then down in verse 9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction and away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory uh, of his might. These are uh, uncomfortable verses to read. Somehow, the fact that we are growing as a church is important to highlight God's righteousness. Somehow that's true. There's a very interesting verse in Ephesians that talks about how the church is a testimony to the invisible spiritual powers. And that in itself is a um, a very interesting topic to think about. 
But somehow the church growth is evidence of God's judgment. Um, How can that be? Well, we can imagine that if we stand here in Fanwood on Terrell Road as a beacon of love and truth and goodness and righteousness, then this highlights the difference between us and those who have not accepted the gospel, who have not accepted the truth that they've been told about the Lord Jesus Christ. It highlights the difference. And so God can use us in that way to be evidence of his righteous judgment. Do you see that? Because we're here, just because we're here and we're growing and we're being what we're supposed to be, then God can be seen to be righteous in his judgment. It's a very serious judgment. Paul talks a lot, as you know, in both of these letters about the final judgment, that final time, the return of the Lord and the judgment, and we'll be getting into that in chapter 2. And, uh, but in order for that to be seen as righteous, I mean, it is righteous because it's God who's doing it, but to be seen as righteous, we stand as a beacon as a growing church. And if we're not a growing church, if we're a floundering or a, a, a Laodicea not caring or uh, just going through the motions, then shame on us because we're supposed to be here standing as evidence for God's righteous judgment. I just want to say a word about, um, about this judgment uh, because the verses are here And they make me very uncomfortable to think about. uh, And that is a word about hell. It's very clear that there is an eternal punishment for those who don't accept the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to mention this because it's becoming uh, a sort of an increasing trend nowadays uh, to disbelieve in hell. To believe that when we die... If we don't believe in the Lord Jesus, if we're not a Christian, we will be just annihilated and will disappear. And our soul will just disappear. And this is not what the Bible teaches. So if you're you're prepared to believe what the Bible teaches, you must believe in this eternal punishment. And it's a terrible, terrible punishment. Eternal destruction, it says in verse 9. Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And if you just reflect on that, reflect on how horrible it would be to be away from the Lord forever. You think, um, oh, I'm just going to go, I'm going to go to hell and I'm just going to have, I'm going to party forever. Well, all of the good things about partying, all the things you enjoy about partying won't be there. Because it's away from the Lord and everything, every good feeling that we ever feel, even ones that come from abusing the gifts of God, are still all from God. Any enjoyment we take in anything in life comes from God. So imagine just taking all of that away. Any joy at all, forever and ever and ever. And that's what hell is. And It's sometimes described as a fire. Because how do you describe that? 
just try to think of the worst thing you could ever think of, like being on fire forever. If you can think of something worse, well, it's probably that. So it's a terrible, terrible place. And it's, some, it's a place you don't want to be. And for whatever reason, in God's grace, he has decided to save those who look to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as their savior and believe in him. And praise be to him for that, that he has allowed some, anyone who believes, to come into his glorious light, his glorious kingdom, and instead of suffering eternal separation from him, is able to experience eternal presence with him. C.S. Lewis once said that going to heaven is drinking joy from the fountainhead of joy. That's a great expression. He also says, Paul, in verse 10, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, that's Christ glorified in us. And that's, boy, is Christ glorified in me? I mean, we should each ask that. In my life, in the things I do in my life, in the way I choose to spend my time and interact with people, is Christ glorified in my life? When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Because of their belief, because those brand new Christians in Thessalonica decided to come and accept the message of Paul, the salvation by Christ, he, Christ, was glorified. Notice it says in verse 12, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. This one is maybe a little bit surprising. And you in him. You glorified in him. Me glorified? Oh, no, I don't. I don't think of myself as being glorified. It's the Lord Jesus Christ that's glorified, not me. And you in him. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. Preparing you for an eternal weight of glory. This is why we want to be a growing church. So that Christ, to all these people around us, will be glorified in us. And one day, that we will be glorified in him. You can read about that in Revelation, what What a wonderful thing that is, the marriage supper of the Lamb, when we will be glorified in him. And of course, he takes the top position always, but there is a sense in which we will be glorified as well. So Paul, in this first chapter of 2 Thessalonians, 
shows us that we are expected as a church. He expected the Thessalonians to grow. He showed us several ways that we can measure growth, none of which is numbers. And again, not that increasing in numbers is bad. It's just not emphasized anywhere in the New Testament. Well, maybe in Acts when it talks about 2,000 were added in one day, that kind of thing. Um, But in steady state, we don't expect that uh, kind of growth. That was sort of an initial thing in the church. So not so much to, to do with numbers, but to do with these other things like faith and love. Is this growing in us? Steadfastness, obedience, completion. And the reason that we want to do is these are three great reasons to motivate us um, uh, in order to, um, uh, that we will stand as evidence of God's righteousness, that Christ will be glorified in us, and that we will be glorified in him. So may the Lord challenge us with these thoughts about spiritual growth. Uh, and there's always, as the saying goes, room to grow. And so if we are able to answer all of these questions, uh, yeah, we're fine. Then uh, maybe we're deceiving ourselves. There's always room to grow. And I challenge each one of us to think about that in terms of our own role here at Terrell Road Bible Chapel. We are a community of believers under the headship of Christ, who is expected to grow in all of these ways. And each of us is responsible for doing a part in it. And so let's ask ourselves that question. Are we being the people that God wants us to be here together as he builds his magnificent church? Lord Jesus, what a great vision you give us in Ephesians chapter 5 when we read how you are You are uh, preparing your church, cleansing it by washing of the water, uh, uh, the word of the water of the word. You are preparing it to as a bride for the future. And we confess that very often we act in such a way that this just isn't true. We uh, we we're lazy. Uh, We. We, um, we bicker and backbite and, and uh, um, don't care about the things that matter to you. We just confess that that's often true. We pray that this vision that we have here in, in Paul's letter, second letter to the Thessalonians, would encourage us and, and um, motivate us to uh, be more what you want us to be here, that we would be a shining beacon in this community of your righteousness and that uh, people would be drawn to you, that we would be drawn to you, and we grow in our faith and our love and our steadfastness. We just pray all of these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.